designers, merchants, retailers, when they are building their designs, when they're building their collections, they typically have one or two body shapes in mind. In the case of women's fashion, it tends to be the uh, hourglass and, and top hourglass body figures from uh, data that we've generated. That's not most of the population. The hourglass body shape is not even a quarter of the population um, in the United States. And there is a wide swath of the, the population that has difficulty finding clothes that fit them because clothes just aren't produced for their body shape. My name is Nick Clayton. I'm the co-founder and CTO of Sabatu. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labbart, and today how Nick Clayton built and optimized the visual platform driven by analytics, tailored for the fashion designer. All this and more on Code Story. Nick Clayton has been into tech most of his life. And outside of tech, he loves a good strategy game or a board game. In fact, he met his fiance playing these types of games. He's an avid Magic the Gathering player and has been enjoying the game for over 20 years. When I asked the difference between Magic and Dungeons and Dragons, he notes that D&D is a role-playing game and more about telling a story, while Magic is more about strategy and mechanics. He also enjoys spending time with friends and family and cooking a good meal with lots of flavors. Nick and his co-founders followed the data and learned that there were a large number of people in the population that have a hard time finding clothes, because clothes aren't produced in their body shape. After iterating on solutions around education and recommendation engines, they decided to move upstream into the designer's process. This is the creation story of Savitude. Fundamentally, Savitude seeks to address the problem of shape in fashion. The issue there is designers, merchants, retailers, when they are building their designs, when they're building their collections, they typically have one or two body shapes in mind. In the case of women's fashion, it tends to be the uh, hourglass and, and top hourglass body figures from uh, data that we've generated. That's not most of the population. The hourglass body shape is not even a quarter of the population um, in the United States. And there's a wide swath of the, the population that has difficulty finding clothes that fit them because clothes just aren't produced for their body shape. So we started out trying to address this issue by creating a recommendation engine. Uh, and so we, we built uh, the first very initial version of our system was a educational app to try to give people advice about uh, how to dress for their body shape. That evolved into this recommendation engine that was suggesting clothes uh, based on a, a consumer's body shape and proportion. Um, and something that we found there, I initially thought there was something going wrong with our system, that there was a bug in our system. We found for some body shapes that we weren't making any recommendations. Literally, the, the recommendation page might show up blank um, at one point in our development process. So I spent you know, a, a couple of hours hunting around for the bug. 
couldn't find any bug and eventually figured out that the recommendations were working, there just wasn't anything to recommend. Um, and that, in, in combination with a variety of, of other thinking on our parts, brought us to taking our technology and applying it upstream to the actual design process, uh, which is where we are today. So we have a, a system that helps uh, retailers, designers, and merchants better optimize their collections to flatter their actual customer population. Tell me about the MVP for that product, you know, the first product you built. Uh, how long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? You know, we formed the company in uh, early 2016. The first real product that we brought to market, I would say we didn't really start working on until late 2016. You know, our, our first MVP with that product was uh, late 2017. So it was about a year uh, for us to, to build the whole recommendation engine. We used a lot of custom implementation, right? A lot of the AI and ML was uh, based on a patent that we filed and based on our own systems built on the sort of standard SQL Python. One of the, the core aspects of our technology has been that it has always been visual. And we uh, more and more are viewing so ourselves as a computer vision company, um, in addition to being a AI ML for fashion. And so for that, we used primarily TensorFlow, a little bit of Keras, a fair bit of OpenCV uh, as the, the really all three of those are excellent resources for anyone looking to get into computer vision generally. Let's dig into that a little more. So even in choosing those technologies or, you know, what you were going to start building first, you got to go through with any MVP certain, you got to make certain decisions and trade-offs about, you know, what you're going to build when, what you're not going to build, what sort of technical debt you're going to accept. So tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to work through and how you coped with them. Yeah, we had a really pretty hefty question early on for whether or not we wanted to build out our visual recognition pipeline in-house. You know, we spent a while uh, making that decision, testing out some of the, the systems that existed out there. The primary one we were looking at was um, the Intel, uh, or sorry, IBM Watson system. We found that for our application, we were looking at such specific details. We weren't really looking to classify, you know, a chair versus a car versus a person. We were looking to classify a V-neckline versus a deep V-neckline versus a round neckline, um, which is a, a much more nuanced classification and requires more domain-specific customizations that just aren't available through uh, a system like that. So we did eventually, you know, we did a bunch of testing uh, on accuracy and we built some preliminary prototype systems off of the, the TensorFlow library, and we found that we were able to get slightly higher accuracy even with those preliminary prototypes. So we, uh, we went forward with that, uh, building out our own pipeline and being able to leverage the domain expertise in the way that we constructed that pipeline. You know, I'm not a fashion designer. Uh, two of my co-founders are uh, fashion designers, and it was really helpful in building out our first version of that system. And it's been helpful throughout the process um, to understand exactly what's going on from a fashion perspective so that we can build that into the algorithms uh, rather than just sort of blindly applying data. 
That makes sense. I, I would imagine you have to build a lot of custom stuff to solve what you're solving, given that you're innovating quite a bit in this specific area because nothing exists like what you're building, right? Yeah, it, it is uh, you know, a very new area. Um, and to give you an idea, we have filed five patents um, over the years. Um, we're considering filing a sixth now. But there's a lot of domain specificity um, and a lot of innovation that happen, has to happen to get the level of quality that we're looking for beyond sort of you know, a, a standard uh, application of a standard network architecture. That's a great place to start. That's exactly where we started. For, for our visual recognition system, the first implementation was, uh, you know, we had tested uh, two or three network architectures, Inception being one of them, um, ResNet being another one of them. Uh, and we threw some data at those architectures um, and to see how it works, right? Get the, the first fastest thing that we could get up and running running little bit of manual passing of data back and forth uh, to, to get everything hooked into a system um, and, you know, get it up and running, see what happens. Well, how did you progress the product from there, from that point? How did you mature it? And to give a little bit better context of, of what I'm looking for in that question is, how did you build your roadmap? And how did you decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build? So a lot of it was driven by market demand. Right, so it was what are customers asking us for? What are uh, you know our, our advisors who are in the industry saying is important? Um, what from uh, our experience in uh, not so much my experience, but my co-founder's experience in the fashion industry? Um, what do they think is important? And then what is uh, doable? Right, so that that's very much where my expertise came in of. These are the things that would be nice to have, um, and it's it's always a trade-off of how long is something going to take versus how much value uh, is it going to create for for our consumers. Uh, and we generally just tried to do the highest value um, for the least amount of time. Sometimes we would do uh, the absolute highest value, even though it was going to take a long time because it needed to be done. Um, and so the, the best example of that is when we decided that we really needed to build the analytics and the generative capability to be able to make suggestions in the design phase. And that was a, a pretty substantial pivot for us. Um, but it was important to solve the actual need that we were seeing, to, to be able to tell retailers who were asking us, okay, you know, you've, you've seen our collection, you know that we have holes here, here, and here. Uh, and we, we did that an analysis manually at first, um, where we would look at their, their collection, run it through our visual recognition engine, and see um, you know, where there were gaps uh, in their assortment. Um, but we didn't have any way to fix that. We could just sort of point to the problem and say, you've got a problem here, you should fix it. Um, and it really became very evident that we needed to be able to fix it. Um, so it's really about where the market was pulling uh, is, is probably the biggest driver of roadmap. Um, and uh, you know, if the market's not 
pulling you down your roadmap, you're probably doing something wrong. So let's talk about the team. So let's switch to team. How did you go about building your team and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? Our team has been and still is fairly small. The biggest principle in team, well, there are several principles in team that we've had throughout the years. One of them, we believe firmly in transparency um, and that that takes a, a lot of aspects, but it's about um, you know, when you think something is wrong, speak up. If you have an idea, speak up. We try to share as much information as we can with the team um, so that they know what's going on um, and they can bring those useful ideas. Uh, the second principle that I feel has been a huge advantage to us um, is the, the marriage of design expertise and engineering expertise has always been critical to our, our success. So insofar as we are able to build a team that's able to work together with that sort of creative side and the analytical side, uh, that's probably the, the biggest value to us is that ability among designers to think analytically and among engineers to think creatively. Uh, so that that and just, you know, we're a startup, it's all hands on deck. We're going to be having people do things that they've never done before. Uh, and I'm a, a firm believer that your ability and willingness to learn is much more important than any experience. Agreed. I completely agree with that. I also love how you put you know, teaching designers to think analytically and engineers to think creatively. Um, if if you and I could figure out how to make that work, I'm sure we could write a book and help a lot of people <laughs> to get the left and the right brain firing at the same time. <laughs> it's you know worked out very well for us, for sure. Um, and uh, I don't have a sort of patented system to make that happen. Um, it's it's about putting everyone in the same room together and getting the, the right people to see that it does. Uh, I wish I had an algorithm to make that happen, um, but uh, we've found success with it uh, over the years. Um, so it's, it's really just about getting the, the interested parties together and getting them talking. Let's switch to scalability. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or are you fighting this as you grow? So a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We tend to err on the side of building things scalably from the start. Um, that's not always feasible. Sometimes we have to make shortcuts um, to, you know, meet. Unless there is a, a specific deadline, uh, you know, a specific customer ask that we have to meet on some schedule, I will always prefer to, to build it for the scalable system so we don't have to rebuild it again scalably later. Um, so we've pretty well avoided technical debt over the years. Um, but there's definitely plenty of it in our system. Um, there have been plenty of, uh, you know, this conference is coming up and we need to get the demo out for this. Um, and then after that, there's no more time to work on the demo because it's working already. It's it's done. That, that feature functionally works and we'll make it more scalable later. Um, it's really about figuring out where your drivers of cost are 
uh, and what you have to build scalably. Um, so, uh, for example, um, I have uh, in in my personal time um, built a uh, calculator for a, a video game that I play, Pokemon Go, um, and that is built scalably for absolutely no reason. There, there's no reason to build it scalably. I just sort of built it scalably by default um, because it was a, a short piece of code. Um, but doing that professionally, I would say, you know, just do it. Um, but for our for our system, we process a lot of images. Um, just, a, you know, uh, we did, for example, an, an analysis of the last five years of Fashion Week data, and that's about 100,000 images. Um, we look at uh, images coming down Instagram. Um, we look at images on Pinterest. There's, you know, billions of images there, um, though we don't process all, all billions of them, obviously. But so for us, um, looking at those drivers of cost, uh, like image recognition, and trying to optimize there and bring costs down there, uh, is it's about spending your time efficiently, right? And making scalable what needs to be scalable and shortcutting where you can't. Well, as you step out on the balcony, and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? There's a few aspects to be proud of, you know, at work in this field for. Um, I think that the, uh, probably one of our, our most technically impressive uh, pieces of software is our image recognition pipeline. Um, and so from, from a sort of pride as a technologist, I, I would point to that. Um, and I, I think that that's at least one of the most impressive things we've built, um, if not the most impressive thing we've built. From a doing actual good in the world, right? the image recognition does serve a purpose uh, at the end of the day, and it, it's necessary for all of the other pieces. Um, but I think the, uh, the analytics and the generative algorithms around allowing uh, designers to build their assortments more sustainably um, and build their uh, assortments more inclusively. Um, I think that uh, I'm most proud of in that context. Um, so it's it's maybe less complicated uh, than the image recognition pipeline, but its impact is greater. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. In the like first cut, uh, of our system. We were doing a, an analysis of a particular retailer for what their what their assortment coverage was um, and where they had holes um, and where they had oversupply. We initially ran through uh, their images and the data just wasn't making any sense. And what we realized was happening um, was we were duplicating a lot of the images. Um, and part of that was because the way that they were categorized in, in the hierarchy coming from this retailer was creating duplicates. Uh, but it was obvious if you looked at the images or if you, you know, analyzed the images at all that they were the same image. You know, eventually we just had to redo it all um, and uh, rerun that analysis with dedupe uh, in, in place there and 
we probably should have had dedupe in there from the first place. There are these wildly complicated hierarchies and we're trying to fundamentally make sense of uh, unstructured data. Not deduping was a, a huge mistake. At the end of the day, that didn't really cost us anything um, because we, we caught it internally. But it's a, a good example of making sure you're, particularly in data science, making sure that you're running processes correctly. Deduping, I think, uh, is is a technical word that I really like yeah. <laughs> and enjoy. And I, I think it's a perfect uh, tech word to introduce to the world. So I appreciate that you walked me through that. Well, let's switch to you, Nick. Who influences the way that you work? Name is, you know, CEO, CTO, builder, really any person that you look up to and why. I think that there's more than sort of aspirational people out there who have done great works. Uh, you know, the Elon Musk's, the um, uh, the Jeff Bezos's. There, there isn't an individual who I haven't met um, or who I haven't at least read the works of um, that. I think really influences me. I think most has been the the support networks that I, I've built along the way. So, um, uh, you know, Ron Lancaster, uh, I met uh, several years ago while we were in the Techstars program in Minneapolis. Um, he's uh, another CTO. He's been enormously helpful to me in uh, navigating the position um, and uh, you know figuring out over the years uh, or just someone to talk over uh, this, you know, what's what's going on here, what should we do about it? Um, I think that that sort of support network um, is really important. Um, and it's something that I, I've struggled with over the years, asking for help. Um, it's, it's not something that comes naturally to me. I want to do everything myself. I want to fix everything myself. Um, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, reach out and make other people solve my problems for me, um, which is not really what asking someone for help is. Um, but it's it's how I, you know, even four or five years ago looked at uh, asking people for help. Um, so I think building that support network and being comfortable reaching out to people um, and building you know those those real relationships with people who are experienced in your field uh, is going to be way more useful than than any inspiration from uh, some public figure well we talked about a mistake nick but a little bit different spin if you go back to the beginning what would you do differently, or where would you consider taking a different approach? So, you know, uh, we should have pivoted out of uh, rec the recommendation space a hell of a lot earlier. Um, I think we we carried on in that space for much too long. It's very crowded. Um, there, it's there's a lot of approaches to that recommendation space. You know, ours was unique. Um, ours was shape based in a way that no one else was doing. Um, but it was still incredibly difficult to uh, get any attention over the noise of you know, sizing solutions, 250 other companies that are in that recommendation personalization space. You know, part of that was my fault in being overly attached to what we had built. 
realizing that sooner and making the, the pivot that we did sooner would have made a huge difference for us. Well, last question, Nick. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur that's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? One of the pieces of advice that has most stuck with me um, is really just understand first the problem that you are solving. Uh, and it's a, a fundamental engineering principle, but it's one that we lose sight of far too often um, in becoming enamored with our, our technology and becoming enamored with uh, you know the fancy ways that we can solve a problem that maybe no one is having. Um, and so first and foremost, I would say figure out really even before you figure out your full solution or test anything, figure out what it is that you're trying to solve uh, and figure out why people need help with that. You know, why is it that, um, why is this a problem um, beyond that it is? You know, what, what are the root causes of that and where can you most efficiently address uh, that problem? Because you know, I, I have a background in computer vision, machine learning. I will tend to uh, hit everything with a computer vision hammer. Um, and uh, that works pretty well for, for some stuff, um, but it's overcomplicated for others. Um, I think a really uh, good example of, of this sort of thinking, I was uh, advising someone um, a few months ago they were trying to figure out, uh, they wanted to see how they could apply machine learning um, to help them filter uh, filter data in, in their database. Um, and at the end of the day, we talked through what their problem was, um, you know, what, what they were trying to get out of this uh, machine learning system, and they really just didn't need machine learning at all. Uh, the, the whole system could be achieved with uh, some creative use of hashes. Um, and uh, it was a lot simpler, it was a lot uh, faster, it you know, wasn't technologically fancy at the end of the day, um, but it got the job done. Uh, so I think looking for simple solutions to real problems is the best advice that I have. I love that advice, that's fantastic. Well, Nick, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Savitude. Thanks so much for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.